Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. The mother leaned closer over the tabletop, and her eyes narrowed till her face filled eight boxes, leaving only the peripheral boxes for the waterfall. And for a moment, it felt to me her expression varied between one box and the next. In one, for instance, her eyes were laughing cruelly, but in the next, they were filled with sadness. The sounds of the waterfall, the children, the dogs, all faded to a hush to make way for whatever the mother was about to say. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reading with Joy. We are reading Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguru, and I'm so excited to dive into part two uh, with doctors Jeremiah and Sarah Coogan, uh, some of my friends who I have met through basically through a coffee shop. Um, this is a this is a great uh, testimony to the community forming and shaping uh, capacities of a good local coffee shop. I met uh, Jeremiah because we both sit and mark papers and do things, and I ended up encountering Sarah. And they are both fascinating scholars and lovely people. And I learned um, also enjoyed clearing the sun. So I'm very excited to welcome you all on the show today. So welcome Jeremiah and Sarah. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you. So um, before we dive in, uh, why don't you all give a little introduction to yourselves and what you spend your days doing and then um, how you first encountered Clearing the Sun. Okay, I guess I'll start. Um, I'm Sarah Coogan. I am a literary scholar. I did my PhD in English at the University of Notre Dame, focused on 20th century literature, British, Irish, Caribbean, kind of a little bit of everything, um, but especially focused on nostalgia. So the theme of memory is really important to my research. And it's one reason why I really, really like Ishiguro and, and have enjoyed reading many of his novels. So um, I, I actually got to pick up Clara in the Sun and read it for this podcast, which has been a treat because I hadn't read one of his novels in a while. But um, yeah, so I, I suppose it's partially Jeremiah's fault because he picked it up and was very enthusiastic and, and partially down to you as well, Joy. And I'm, so I'm Jeremiah. I'm a scholar of the New Testament and early Christianity. And one of the things I spend a lot of time thinking about is early Christian reading, but then also the ways that early Christian reading practices often relied on the work of other people who we don't always see. So people who did the physical work of writing and actually also often the physical work of reading. Mm -hmm. And this means that as a historian and a theologian, I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, people who are made invisible and who we don't always pay attention to. Um, and I think that actually also invites us into some of the conversations that Clara and the son brings us to. Wonderful. Well, I'm very excited to have um, both of you on the show today and talking about this. And it, I think it's fun that in kind of um, tertiary ways, you both kind of have connections with your scholarship with this book, both of the theme of memory, which comes up in today's chapter, the mother, um, thinking about how nice it would be to not be able to remember in some sense. Um, but then also with Clara being this, this, this character who th through whom we are seeing everything, but who kind of can be invisible to other people. And in some ways, other people wish she was more invisible than she in fact is. Um, 
I was going to ask, didn't, didn't, did Ishiguro have some connection with Notre Dame at some point, or am I making that up entirely? Um, I don't know that he had any connection with Notre Dame. I know one of my committee members at Notre Dame did work with him, and it was, you know, long enough ago that I'm not sure what university they were affiliated with. I think Ishiguro did, did his research at, like, the University of East Anglia or something. Um, but I, I did, you know, hear a few anecdotes about him in passing and in classes during my graduate work. Apparently, he, he occasionally liked to uh, take a break from doing his coursework to go off and play guitar and kind of brood upon life. So. <laughs> well, Ishiguro and I would have that in common then. Wh whom's amongst us doesn't want to take a break and play guitar and brood from time to time? Um, Great. Well, uh, before we get into this, this section, I thought it'd be helpful to have a quick kind of flyover of what transpires. So Sarah, we have, a, we have assigned this task to you. So can you give us a quick summary of what happens in part two? Sure. Uh, so part two records for us Clara's recollections of the beginning of her time with Josie's family um, from these kind of idyllic memories of, of her watching the sunset with Josie and getting to see more of the sun to her, her piecing together family relationships and, and the different characters in the house and some of the past of this family that we ourselves, I think, are also curious about. Um, and in particular, uh, Josie's relationship with Rick, her relationship with other children as well, and the strain that places on this important friendship that Clara is trying to understand. And then we end with a, a kind of cooling in, in Clara's relationship with Josie because of a trip that Clara takes with the mother um, to a waterfall that's that's very significant to Josie personally. Um, so that's that's the flyby view, but there's a lot of intricacy in there that I'm looking forward to unpacking. I add one more thing to that. Yeah. So the other thing, of course, that we're experiencing as Jos as Clara gets to know Josie and Josie's family is also that we and Clara, I think, or learning some about how the children of this world are. And we still actually don't really quite know or understand, but clearly there's something very odd going on that divides people into categories. And this also is part of what Clara is trying to make sense of. So both at the particular human level of this one family, but also we're experiencing the malformation of a whole society, I think. Something I think is interesting about that is that we're learning about this through Clara um, and it almost, uh, one of the things I'm always thinking about when I'm reading this is that she's a robot with programming, right? And it seems like whatever her programming is has kept her from knowing about certain things, right? So she doesn't, mm -hmm. she calls phones oblongs and she doesn't really know what's happening on oblongs. We don't get a sense of, she picks up kind of things about society in the news through the characters but there's never a sense of her having any like direct downloaded knowledge, um, even though you would presume that a robot like this would have some access to the internet. So there's an interesting kind of question about like what's filtered out in her perception of the world, which I find quite yeah, interesting. No, what she does know she encounters through magazines in the store that she was yeah. once in. Yeah. And I guess one of the things to say too would be um, one of the words we've gotten and this one is lifted, right? So like the difference between her and Rick is that she's been lifted. Does it say specifically what that is or are we just intuiting at this point? We still don't know. Um, it, it's pretty strongly implied that it has something to do with Josie's medical issues. So there's, there's some intrigue to uh, 
to be unpacked there but yeah we I think it's interesting that Clara of course is trying to analyze the world she's trying to piece it apart and understand it um, and we're trying to do exactly the same thing and it's hard to tell sometimes what is her robotic analysis that's maybe overly formalistic mm -hmm. and what is actually correct analysis of what's clearly a stratified society. Yes. And we certainly see this in the bullying of Rick mm -hmm. um, in the, the room with all of the children attempting very badly to interact, um, that there is a sense of stratification here. Um, but also I, I think it is worth noting the sort of danger or risk in the parents' um, conversation, um, that whatever exactly is being done to these children is something that is actually harmful, and that's still just sort of built into the structure of this society. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because I think you're, it's, you're right to notice that, like, the, Clara's perceptions are always for a purpose, and that purpose is to be able to care for uh, Josie. And she does like she does need to organize people in her own mind in quite clear ways uh, so that she knows how to interact with them and even at the very beginning you have this sense of like she can tell when a parent is high rank or not whatever that means um and then also um she refers to people according to their kind of social roles so it's the mother for the longest time and then it's you know we learn about the father briefly kind of we have some intimations about him but it's always this sense of Clara almost makes obvious what you might not in society be like that person's, you know, high rank or high class or, you know, but she's kind of externalizing or, or making obvious these, these things that maybe we wouldn't like to admit. I also found, and then we should actually get into the scenes that we wanted to discuss. We all picked significant scenes. Um, but I the thing I find quite interesting about this book is that in a way it's kind of dystopian, right? It's, it's like, you know, this, this future with, all these, you know, perhaps genetic modification, whatever. Um, but it's not unimaginable. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not something that seems so distant or alien that you couldn't imagine it happening. And part of that to me is in this scene where she's, and uh, the scene where she's with all the children, it's basically just like, it seems like they're all being educated on computers. And so they're not uh, socialized with their children. And that kind of sounds like the last few years of uh, the world, you know? So it's an interesting mixture of that dystopia with kind of normalcy, you know, it's, it's not so different, so. I, I think this is a recurring theme in, in Ishiguro is this slippage between what's unusual about the world he's describing and what's actually universal. So uh, the idea of the high status office worker in part one could be a new part of the society or could just be a part of our world that Clara is externalizing and in the same way that you're describing with the phones and online education, we, we have to puzzle out what's actually normal and we don't see it yeah. and what's new. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so shall we, um, we each kind of picked moments that felt significant in the chapter to us. So um, I think it'd be good to dive into those. And I'm thinking chronologically. Jeremiah, you picked the sun going down, um, the sunset. And I think that's the first in our line. So do you want to read that passage and then we can all just chat about it a bit together? Sure, so I'll read the most relevant bit here. There's sort of a long passage about how Josie and Clara like to go and watch the sun go down. 
Um, but I'll start reading on what's page 62 in my copy. Apart from the fields of the sky, there was something else that we could see from the bedroom rear window that drew my curiosity, a dark box-like shape at the end of the furthest field. It didn't move as the grass shifted around it. And when the sun came so low, it was almost touching the grass, the dark shape remained in front of his glow. It was on the evening Josie risked the mother's anger on my behalf that I pointed it out to her. When I did so, she raised herself higher on the button couch and moved her hands to her eyes to shade them. Oh, you must mean Mr. McBain's barn. A barn? Well, it, it's maybe not really a barn because it's open on two sides, more a shelter, I guess. Mr. McBain keeps stuff in there. I went there once with Rick. I wonder why the son would go for his rest to a place like that. Yeah, Josie said. You'd think the son would need a palace, minimum. Maybe Mr. McBain's done a big upgrade since I was last there. So, so in this passage, um, Josie and Clara watch the sun go down. And Clara is trying to figure out where the sun disappears from the point of visual perception, which seems to be this small farm structure. Um, the, this must be where the sun lives. And of course, Clara depends on the sun. She's a solar powered um, robot, and she capitalizes the sun throughout the book. The sun is very important. Um, but then the sun is also in some way anthropomorphized. Um, this actually is, is almost mythological. It sounds a lot like Apollos driving his chariot down to the horizon. But what this, I think, brings into focus something that already connects with the passage that Joy read at the beginning is the questions of scale and perception and how pieces fit together. So in Clara's imagination, she doesn't know how big the sun is. And it seems like the sun could fit in a bar. Mm. Um, this is another part of the download package that Clara didn't get, apparently. Um, she doesn't know sort of basic facts about how things are put together. But this then invites her to think about the relationships between things and how scale and size and pattern actually works. And I think this is, and I'm eager to hear what you think about this. I think this sort of ties into the, a broader theme of us seeing the world through Clara's perception, trying to see actually what is the scale? How do things relate to each other? And then I think pointing out by Clara's misperceptions and maybe right but unusual perceptions, the things that actually are out of scale in this human society as well. Mm. Yeah, that's, I think one of the things I, uh, so I, I reviewed this for Plow around the same time that I was doing the Piranesi book club last summer. And it's funny because they're, they're quite different books in a way, you know, one takes place in an immense house and this very kind of magical realism kind of thing. But um, they have a similarity in that they both have a narrator who sees things in quite a different and beautiful way that's not quite right, right? There's some kind of something off about the perception, but that in living in their very perception of the world, you are given a new way of looking at and perceiving things. Or even you're just kind of given the capacity to question your own perception of the world. Right, right. Yeah, what do you make of this passage, Sarah? Many things, um, but related to what you were just saying, I think to me as a reader, the, the matter of the sun is the moment when I most differ from Clara, where, where I definitely see okay, she's, she's missing information here. Like Jeremiah is saying about the matter of 
scale. I, at, at no point do I actually believe that the son is, is this deific figure who's looking after her. And yet at the same time, these are the moments when Clara feels the most human, mm-hmm. that she has her own faith and myth that she perhaps has constructed to make up for this, this gap in her programming. Um, but I think that that tension between our the gap between our perception and hers, but the shared mode of filling out our understanding of the world is, is really striking here. Um, and related to that, that line, I wonder why the sun would go down for his rest to a place like that really struck me because it's so Christological, right? I just have manger written in the margin of the book. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to ascribe that to Shigeru necessarily, but I, I also think that he's thinking about a lot of things when he's he's writing these passages and that mm-hmm. particular phrasing is really fascinating. And at the same time, this makes Clara incredibly human, but it also, I think, puts into contrast something that makes Clara unlike the other humans. She doesn't seem to have a shared mythic or theological world. She is, in another sense, very much alone. Already in the store, she seems to be seeing and perceiving things that the other AFs just aren't seeing. And then here, she is amongst humans, but she is not one of these humans. And she does not share her mythic imaginative world with them. They don't share her mode of perception. And it doesn't seem that Josie understands Clara's theory of how the sun works at this point. Um, it's, it's not a shared world. So she's constructing this all on her own, which does feel oddly, not just that it separates her from the humans in the story, but it also doesn't feel quite as human in a different sense as well. Hmm. Two things I think is interesting about that is, I'm not sure if constructing is the right word because like right. when, we, when we experience Clara in the very opening, the sun being this source of nourishment and goodness, is like the most, it's like the most fundamental self-evident thing about. Right. I think, um, I think in a way, you know, in that opening chapter, we're almost walking with her as she develops and gains more information and gains more kind of tracking. And I think it's really significant that the first kind of fundamental part of her gaining information is this sense that the sun is this, this godlike figure who cares for her. And I think that, um, Thing, two things that relate to that. One is that, you know, we haven't really gotten to this question yet, and it will unfold more as the book unfolds. But there's this question about, you know, what is a human? How does a human consciousness differ from a robotic consciousness? But one of the things, if such a thing can be said to exist, which I am leaving open, and I will eventually have a person who writes on transhumanism come and talk to us about that. Um, but one of the things that it opens up as a possibility is that if you managed to create something like a consciousness, one of the first things it would do would be to uh, kind of create this, this posture of openness to something like the divine, that that's perhaps one of the most fundamental parts of what a human consciousness is, is, is some way of accounting for something rather than nothingness for nourishment for survival and that's kind of interesting part of Clara the thing I also think is interesting and this struck me in the very first chapter is that Josie uh doesn't share Clara's view of the sun but she kind of goes along with it and and like also describes the sun as as a he and that's interesting to me too um and you know, is that something that Clara picks up from Josie or is it something that Josie plays along with in Clara? Like, where does that come from? 
Right, and this also raises, I think, some really interesting questions about the filtering of the narrative, the reliability of the narration at the level of detail, because we're, we're also seeing all of Josie's interactions with Clara through Clara's own memory and framework here. Um, yeah, and I, I agree. I don't think I don't think constructing is necessarily the right word, but Clara is also, as the story goes on, making sense of this thing, even if the sense of dependence on and reliance upon and even reverence toward the sun is sort of the first time we see. Um, also, she does continue to try to make sense of how the sun works and how she should relate to the sun. Mm -hmm. um, and even like in this passage, there's some very mundanely mechanical questions about how the sun going down works. Um, uh, if there's an entrance to, to a palace, it might be hidden. Maybe the doors open just before the sun gets there. So she is also trying to make sense of this in sort of the more granular mechanical way. Not yeah. unlike we see, you know, Apollo, for example, or many other mythic mirrors about the sun as well. Yeah, it's not just this kind of ineffable, uh, you know, um, what's the word I want? Uh, apophatic relationship to the sun. It's, 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 she wants to know, she wants to have revelation about what the sun is and how it operates. One thing I also take away from this passage is, is some of the uh, richness and ambiguities of Josie's character. So we were told at least twice in part one that Clara's not very good at estimating age yet, but she thinks Josie is 14 and a half. And so perhaps entering part two, we're like, how, how old is this child? And at the beginning, she feels childish. She will kneel on the couch next to Clara and just watch the sunset. Uh, and then later on, we get much more typical teenage behavior. And suddenly it's clear that Clara is probably more or less accurate here. And she is experiencing this the contradiction and transformation that we'll probably talk about a little bit more later. Um, but I, I also think it's interesting that this is a moment where we see Josie as an artist and that that I think is creating some kinship with um, Clara's mythical faith-filled view of the sun. Josie can at least see the colors of the sunset and appreciate that with her and perhaps enjoy imagining that the sun actually does go down to the barn at the end of the day. Uh, so the, the moment of concord I find really fascinating. Yeah, and her and her mother says, I love it when you when you draw with colors, um, Josie. And and that's I think kind of part of Josie's being torn between these two sides of herself that comes out a bit later. Um, so I think the next passage we want to discuss um, would be is it kind of uh, the conversation with Rick? Let me find my sticky note. So this is the conversation between Clara and Rick. Um, at the end of the the interaction session that's that's gone so disastrously from our perspective it's never fun to read about teenagers bullying each other and it's a great moment of uh, I think the more things change the more they stay the same that clearly these are socially deprived children and yet their interactions are are fraught with all of the high school drama that we're we're used to I think in a lot of our media um, but I I find the conversation between uh, between Rick and Clara as, as they're both making sense of what's just happened, essentially really interesting. So in my hardback copy, this starts on page 81, Rick says, she insisted I came, but I suppose she's too busy now to come back in here, see how I'm enjoying this part of the party. He leaned back into the sofa till the sun's pattern was over his face, obliging him to close his eyes. The trouble is, he went on, she doesn't stay the same. I thought if I came today, 
stupid really. I thought she might not change, might stay the same Josie. When he said this, I saw again Josie's hands at various points during the interaction meeting, welcome hands, offering hands, tension hands, and her face and her voice when someone had asked why she hadn't chosen a B3 and she'd laughed and said, now I'm starting to think I should have. And manager's words came into my mind, her warning about children who made promises at the window yet never returned, or worse still, returned and chose another AF altogether. I thought about the boy AF I'd seen through the gap between the slow taxis walking despondently along the RPO building side, three paces behind his teenager, and I wondered if Josie and I would ever walk in such a way. Perhaps you can see now, Rick said, opening his eyes despite the sun's pattern, see how I need to save Josie from this lot. I can see Rick is afraid Josie might become like the others. But even though she behaves strangely just now, I believe Josie is kind underneath. And those other children, they have rough ways, but they may not be so unkind. They fear loneliness, and that's why they behave as they do. Perhaps Josie too. If Josie hangs out with them much more, she soon won't be Josie at all. And that's, that's Rick's final observation. Mm. I think uh, there's, there's a few things that really interest me here. So one is this issue of change, changeability and, and also duplicity that's so challenging for Clara in understanding human interactions and their meanings. We, we see her thinking aloud about how to interpret what she's seen in front of her. And then we also see Rick's very normal anxiety as a teenager about his best friend going through these changes and about the social stratifications that come between them that are in some sense very specific and in some sense universal. Um, but, but one thing that really strikes me here is Clara's last observation, they fear loneliness. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really struck me beginning to read Clara and the Sun was how these, these robots use really abstract concepts all the time. And loneliness seems to be the great evil in Clara's mind. And we can understand why that is. She's supposed to be a friend, therefore she doesn't want her people to be lonely. Mm -hmm. But there's also something very poignant that, that we see in that, that maybe uh, Clara doesn't understand all the dimensions of loneliness and yet there, there is something about her, the simplicity with which she views people that's very compelling and telling about the interactions we've seen. I think that reminds me also of one of the passages that struck me early in the chapter where she's kind of talking about the, you know, Josie's day-to-day -day life. And she says, when, when Josie misses, I think she calls it the short coffee or the quick coffee with her mother, that there's a danger of loneliness creeping in. And, um, and that seems to be when we're thinking about society, kind of one of the pervasive uh, features of it is loneliness and aloneness and mm. kind of isolation. And that Clara sees that in this very simple, this simple way. Um, but I think one of the, one of the things that, I, that strikes me about that conversation with Rick is kind of the question of, um, what is it to be a person and how much can you change? What does change do to a person? You know, he has, he says this quite strong thing of Josie won't be Josie anymore. Um, so what is, what is the relationship between who we are and continuity? Can, you know, are you still the same person if you change your attitudes, 
your, your physical appearance? What, what is kind of the essential thing to someone? Is there an essential thing to someone that is continuous without regard to, to the other kinds of things that might change? And that's something that I think is interesting that comes up in that conversation. And there's a really fruitful counterpoint to this. There's Clara's own transformation into Josie at the end of the chapter um, from just around the passage that Joy read to begin, uh, where it again raises the question, so what is the real Josie to be imitated? Um, mm -hmm. Already it's the question of imitation and reality, what's underneath and what's on the surface, but now Clara, who's afraid of Josie changing and worries about what's really underneath and what people can be, is then manipulated into also playing this game of imitation and what's real. But that also then gives her the opportunity to reflect on what the real Josie might be and might do and might say. Yes. Sarah, you go ahead. Oh, I, I was just thinking that I think this is a, a persistent struggle as in so many ways as we try to make sense of the world around us and, and put it into language that um, simplicity is an incredibly powerful reasoning tool and there's so much truth in it. So, so when Clara, for instance, says well, that they're worried about loneliness, there's a, a power in the simplicity of her perspective that's speaking something true to the situation. But it, it's also perhaps oversimplification. There's a lot of factors at work here. And in the same sense that when Rick says Josie won't be Josie anymore, he's, he's saying something that we know to be true, but is also oversimplifying the ways people can, can change and evolve. Uh, and, and I don't know that there's a way to settle that apparent you know, paradox. But I, I think it's something that, that we will see at work often as we're thinking about what a person is throughout this book. Well, and I think that that really sets up this interesting question, right? Because if, you know, Rick's kind of simple way of thinking about it is that there is a Josie, she looks like this, she acts like this. These are features of her character. And if she stops doing these things, looking like this, whatever, then she'll stop being Josie. So then when Clara imitates Josie perfectly, uh, we might say, well, that is that imitation, a closer approximation of who Rick thinks Josie really is mm -hmm. than a Josie who evolves and changes, you know? So what is a person? Is a person the, the static kind of maintenance of certain characteristics um, mm -hmm. or is a part of what it is to be a person to have this capacity for change and contradiction? And transformation. Um, and that, I think, do you want to say something, Jeremiah, before we move on to the waterfall scene? Well, I mean, this might set up for the waterfall scene as well, but one of the things this also raises is the importance of the body here. Mm -hmm. So it's not entirely clear in what ways Clara or other AFs are and aren't like. Mm -hmm. People see them and can immediately tell. So obviously they look different, but they also have elbows and can imitate human facial features and are in, in general, it seems reasonably human-like in their physiology. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so this also raises that question of exactly how much like or unlike a human Clara is being when she 
tries to be Josie. And precisely this, and this is, I think, really important because precisely the same question arises with Rick, mm. who is also apparently immediately visibly not lifted, whatever exactly, and we still don't know at this point in the novel, what exactly being lifted means, but he's visibly not lifted, apparently, people can tell. Mm. And so this again raises the question of sort of how much identity and category of people is tied up in perceptible um, sort of physiological features. I mean, we've, we've already talked a lot about perception and I think we will continue to, but one of the things I think about in this exchange with Rick is, is the differences between kind of selfish perception mm -hmm. in relationships and loving perception in relationships and how they change what you see in the way that uh, there's something selfish in Rick's fear of Jersey changing, but there's something loving in his, his fear of the damage that the social circle can do to her. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it relates to the larger challenges in this society and the way they perceive each other. And then in the idea of, of Clara's mimicry as well and how's that, how that's perceived. Yeah, I found myself throughout the chapter trying to figure out how big Clara was because mm. in the scene where she's, uh, again, at the beginning when she's sitting at the kitchen counter and she says, my, my legs don't touch the floor. And so I was thinking, you know, if we know Josie, if Josie's 14-ish, like, her feet would probably touch the floor, right? So we think, okay, well, maybe Claire is smaller, but like, how small is she? That's, and that's a kind of, un, yeah, that's an interesting thing is trying to figure that out from her own description of her environment. Right. Mm -hmm. Although she also apparently is roughly the same size as Josie because they can kneel on the couch together and together, sort of yeah. share the same field of view. But the kids could conceivably throw her around. Yeah. So there's... The, the question of mass versus size too is inter interesting here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ishiguro chooses not to give us any of this information. Yeah. I, I think precisely so we can puzzle over these problems. Yeah. Sort of like we know she has hair, but we don't know what range of facial features or expressions she has. Mm -hmm. I think that's fascinating. All very interesting. Okay, so I think we should move now to this waterfall scene, which I've already read a little excerpt from. And this, uh, it's funny, in a way, this is kind of a recapitulation of the ending of part one. Because at the ending of part one, um, you know, Josie's mother um, asks Clara to, to imitate Josie's limp, right? And we have in this scene, um, in kind of a strange fury, she leaves Josie at home because she realizes she's still ill and takes Clara, um, which like, if you think about it, it's quite an odd thing to do, right? If you think about this is a robot and she's acting like, I'm gonna treat this robot instead of my child, which is something else interesting throughout the chapter. Like we get the feeling that Melania housekeeper is a bit like cold to Clara. But if you were to think about yourself, if, if you were in a home and then suddenly there was a robot introduced, you might also, relate to it as a robot, right? You, you wouldn't want it to be around the child all the time. Um, so this, so we have this kind of peculiar situation. Mother takes Josie out to this waterfall. We learn some things about um, the past of this family. So we learn that there was, it's, is it Sal? Is that the, the sister's name? We learn that there was another child and that she died. Um, we learn a bit about very, very small bit about the father who seems to have worked this factory. 
Um, and um, and then we have this very strange scene where where the mother asks um, asks Josie to imitate or asks Claire to imitate Josie. Um, and uh, which I think kind of it was interesting seeing people's responses to the first chapter and the first kind of her imitation. And many people said, well, you know, this demonstrates this demonstrates the fact that um, that Clara has empathy because you know she's really paying attention to and noticing um, Josie. Um, but this one we start to feel a little bit more ominous, at least I did. <laughs> right, because we have this sense of, oh no, like I think there might be ulterior motives to um, why why Josie's mother is requesting this. Um, but the, the thing that struck me about it too is this moment that I read in the opening of Clara doing the thing that she does, which is breaking up a scene into many different little boxes and, um, and perceiving each one of those and looking at the mother and seeing all of these different expressions of, of cruelty and sadness and, and all these kind of patched together. And I think for me, what this, what this scene is doing is it's, it is again, asking this question of what is a person, how do human beings relate? Because that's, that's kind of Clara's goal, right? Is to be able to understand humans so that she can care for Josie and, and be a artificial friend. You know, she's just wanted to be this. Um, and a part of what she sees in this moment is that a part of what it is to be a human is to be deeply contradictory, you know, to have these many warring emotions and feelings to not be simple. You know, Clara is so simple and what she sees in the face of this mother is a, is a radical complexity, you know, a radical disjunction of many different desires and griefs. And, and that's, that's also quite tied up with memory, right? That, and that who we are is largely a, um, a ongoing wrestling with what we remember and even what we don't remember. Um, so what did you all make of this scene with, with the waterfall? Well, to pick up on that point, I think, I think you're right that what Clara is seeing is human complexity and the Clara we've been meeting is relatively simple. But also I think what we're seeing is that Clara is in some ways becoming more human and is as she encounters human complexity and as she is pulled in different directions by the different people she's encountering with, and as she sees more and remembers more, she's also getting some of that complexity, mm. even though we're not getting to watch the complexity on her face the way that Clara is showing us the complexity on the mother's face here. Mm. So I think that's exactly right. And yet it's also inviting us to watch Clara change. Mm. That's a really interesting point. Um, I. I think this passage, like the one you you read in your first podcast on on part one, Joy, um, is reflecting on emotions that are multiple, that are two or or four different feelings at once, um, and and like you're both saying, that has to do with the the nature of human beings, um, but it it also just makes me think of of. Ishiguro's perspective as a writer, right? Every single one of his novels that I've read, and I've read a lot of them, 
is in some way about the narrator arranging their memories and looking back on them. And he, he has several novels that are from the perspective of older characters because from their perspective, you know, memories are part of such a large complex of change and happiness and disappointment. And, and so there's a, a kind of freightedness that accumulates to them. And I think it's fascinating that Clara is essentially doing the same thing here. She's arranging her memories for us so that we can understand how they fit together and the freightedness of them. Um, and yet, even as she's arranging them, one of the things we see clearly is her struggle to come to terms with the multiplicity of experience mm. that's very much on display in this, this moment of uh, refraction of seeing the, the mother's emotions kind of broken down in this visible way. And the visual is, um, I think, what, what she really understands. Her ability to kind of see the contradiction in, in boxes in front of her is, is very powerful here. And that fascinates me. And one of the things here is that we're not exactly sure what the temporal perspective of the narration actually is. We know it's alluded at the beginning of this section that Josie is not as sick as she later would be, but we don't know what has happened to Josie. We don't know how far after, um, after the events being narrated, Clara's voice as narrator is giving this description. And we don't know exactly how much later growth and perception and reperception is shaping this narration. I, um, Clara is relatively um, withdrawn as a narrator in that sense, and Shigro has not tipped his hand uh, on exactly how much we should know and how much Clara knows. Yeah, I think one of the things that strikes me about both of those things, it's kind of the the selectivity of memory, right? Because when we, to tell a story is by its very nature to bracket some bits out, right? It's it's impossible to see everything at once, to say everything at once. Um, and so when we, memories are, we talk about making memories, you know, with our family, but there's some sense to which our memories are made, they're shaped, they're curated, um, or, or we try to understand, we try to put a memory within kind of a larger narrative context and the interesting thing about I thought about this with family members or like you know from extended family where you will get such a different story about what happened in a family depending on who you ask to, to the extent that you're like are you remembering a different event or person or you know and that's because maybe they aren't but they it's kind of like in, in Clara's perception of all these, these boxes of emotion. It's almost like, you know, those family members just picked this box, you know, they, they, they picked this and, and made it simple. And a part of what Clara's experience helps us think about is the way that our memories are, we don't see all the boxes, we see one box or we see two boxes and we kind of pull those out. Um, but that the, the very process of doing that, of kind of orienting ourselves around memories and choosing what story we tell is a part of what orients in the world and makes us choose what we choose. And I think one of the things with the mother that we get the sense of throughout this book in this chapter, but it continues to unfold is the fact that she's actually in the process of deciding how to orient herself towards her memories, uh, I think. Uh, and she's, she's not resolved 
you look like you have a thought about that, Jeremiah. Well, I mean, I'm wondering if it's also fair to say that the mother is not just trying to make sense of the world to figure out how the different bits fit together, mm -hmm. but that she's also actively partitioning off some bits. Mm -hmm. um, Clara, not infrequently, will talk about the boxes that she could see, and then she turns her field of vision and she can't see mm -hmm. the things that had been in those boxes anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that's precisely what we're also invited to think about the mother, both here and in sort of the story about the family that we get on the drive to and from the waterfall, mm. that the mother is trying to figure out how to put things together, how to move forward, but is also partitioning some boxes off out of view. Yeah. Or would like to. Or would like I to, and it doesn't quite succeed, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, it's clear, I, I think, to all of us, the mother is a, a traumatized character. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in, in literary expressions of trauma, not necessarily psychological expressions, but in literary studies, one of the things we talk about is the way that trauma is kind of inarticulable. So there's, there's either a struggle to bring it into words or a desire not to bring it into words. And I think here we see her desire not to speak of things and her intentionally trying to sequester it off and yet it's still so present. Mm. So as we uh, kind of draw to the close of this particular um, section, uh, do you all have any kind of concluding thoughts, things you'd wanna read or things you would tell people to look out for as they continue to read this book? Mm. The, the thing I'm thinking about right now uh, is the way that this, this section really foregrounds for us how to, to be human is to be an unreliable narrator, but also to be a robot is to be an unreliable narrator in a different way. And this is a, another of those kind of universal themes in Ishiguro that everyone has their perspective, as you were saying, Joy, everyone has their way of, of narrating their particular versions of memories and they're often partial and flawed um, but it it will be interesting to see going forward what from what vantage point Clara is arranging her memories how she grows as a narrator and how other characters around her continue to narrate their situations and, and how she tries to make sense of, of that. Clara is an artificial friend. And I think in this conversation, we've mostly focused on the question of the artificiality. Mm -hmm. In what way is her existence as a robot like and unlike that of humans around her? And in what ways is Ishiguro inviting us to think about the humanity of those humans? But I think something to watch, I think we've already actually seen a number of threads of it in this section, but they increase and get more tangled in the next bits is, how that intersects with the friend part. So is it even possible to be a friend as a robot? And for that matter, are these lifted, modified children being enculturated into not knowing how to be friends or indeed into not being given the, the, the psychological ability to be friends in a certain sense? Mm -hmm. um, is Clara actually Jesse's friend? Is she Rick's friend? I mean, the, 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 this, this question of what friendship is, um, is always just below the surface on the question of sort of what makes one human here 
And I think then, of course, also for Ishiguro and for, I think, transhumanist conversations more broadly, then invites the question, well, does friendship require humanity? It's mm. mm, a great question. And also, yeah, the friendship between Clara and Rick, I think, is also quite an interesting one. Is it a friendship? Right. In what ways do they withdraw or move towards friendship? I think, mm. what were you saying? Oh, I was saying, especially as they're sort of both in different ways on the outside of that bullying circle of children. Um, does that put them together or does that really end up isolating them separately? I think one of the final kind of things that I carry both in this chapter and then throughout the book too um, is I love in that conversation between Rick and Clara uh, the sense that she wants to be willing to believe that there is kindness and goodness in them and I don't actually know if it's right to say she wants to believe but maybe in Clara's capacity to see all the contradictory things at once there's this sense that often amidst many malevolent desires we might have there might actually one of those boxes if we could look at people might actually be goodness love a desire for connection um and and i think that one of the things i i really enjoy about ishiguru is we we tend, you know, there's, there's, there can be something kind of horrific and sad in a lot of what he writes, but there's also something quite human in being willing to recognize that the contradictory and conflicted desires we have doesn't mean that everyone's fundamentally lost. It means that they're, that we are kind of fundamentally conflicted and broken, but there is this kind of goodness and this humanity that's there to wish for and to hope for. And I think Clara does that quite beautifully, partially because she can see those different kind of facets and is in a position to do that. And um, that's something to look for in, in the coming uh, weeks and also something to ponder in our own lives. So um, thank you, Sarah and Jeremiah. This has been a wonderful conversation. And, um, and I, I hope that everyone will continue reading and enjoying Clara and will join me in two weeks time for part three. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And don't forget to chime in with your own thoughts about part two of Clara and the Sun, which you can do on my Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or by joining in on the discussion on Patreon. Tune in two weeks from now for part three. I can't wait to hear what you think.